if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith and life of the Catholic Church and to the worldview, culture, and civilization that is Catholicism. We're doing an occasional or intermittent series of episodes on the Eucharist as a part of the Eucharistic revival that the United States Council of Catholic Bishops have called the Church in America to engage in over the next three years. We talked about the reasons for this revival in the first episode in this series, which was episode 36, Making the Eucharist Matter Again. You can find it in the archive. Now, one of the reasons that we discussed in that episode was the disturbing results of multiple surveys showing that most Catholics either don't know or don't understand or simply don't believe the church's teaching on the Eucharist. They don't get or don't buy exactly what is happening in a Catholic Mass. Because what happens in the Mass is, well, quite simply a a miracle, or more precisely, a series of miracles. So if you're sitting in Mass and don't really grasp what's going on, then you're witnessing a miracle without knowing it. You're missing out on the wonder, the joy, the, the humbling awe that you ought to be able to experience. So, over the next four episodes, we're going to drill down pretty deep to try to explain the miracle or miracles of the Mass and the Eucharist with as much precision as we can. And by we, I mean Corey Lakatos and I. Now, regular listeners of the podcast have come to know Corey. He serves as the Director of Communications and Family Ministries at the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization, and he and I host the Book Club episodes here on the podcast. Today, we're talking about how the Mass, the whole thing in its entirety, including the Eucharist, is nothing short of a miracle. To explain why, we had a discussion about metaphysics. Now, that's not a word most of us encounter in ordinary life, and if we did, it may have been in some Looney Tunes, New Agey context. But metaphysics is a legitimate field with an esteemed pedigree in Catholic history. In fact, fundamental Christian doctrines in Catholic theology would never have been articulated without the categories and language of metaphysics by doctors of the church like St. Augustine or St. Anselm or St. Thomas Aquinas. The term metaphysics originated with the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a series of treatises describing the physical laws of nature, and those were combined and published as a book simply called Physics. But Aristotle also wrote about the principles and laws and forces that are sort of above or behind the natural physical laws and govern how those physical laws work. 
And these treatises were published as his work on metaphysics or above physics. Metaphysics includes topics such as how are space and time related to matter? What's the nature of existence and the source of the material universe? How and where does nature interact with what we might call supernature? The Catholic Church teaches that during the Mass, the supernatural intersects the natural. So there's more happening in the Mass than simply what we can see and hear in front of us. And when the supernatural intervenes in the natural, miracles occur. And every Mass is nothing short of a miracle. So, Corey, let's consider two different events that might both be held at at church or at a church. Okay. The first is uh, a church picnic, or or let's make it like a church choir concert. All right. Okay. So the people from the church gather, somebody opens with a prayer, uh, the choir sings, the pastor says a few inspiring words, Uh, maybe there's a special collection for a local charity or something like that, and then everyone sticks around afterwards for pie you know, Mm. refreshments. Okay. The second event would be a Catholic mass, right? A celebration of the mass. The same people gather, but the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist are celebrated. And then afterwards the people stick around for donuts. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, these events share a lot of similarities, right? But some important differences, right? Yeah. So the question is how, and maybe even more importantly, why are those two events different? Yeah, I think it's a good question because from an outside perspective, you you can't necessarily perceive what it is. I'm I'm thinking about um, just my my Protestant background. If if you had those two events at a Protestant church, most people wouldn't consider them to be all that different. You have prayer, you have singing. Those are what you have on on Sunday, anyways. Right. I mean, I think for certain kinds of Protestants. Certainly for secularists, they see no difference. Right, right. As a secularist, you'd see no difference between those two events. For certain Protestants, they would say, well, wherever, this was the phrase I always heard, wherever two or more gather in my name, there am I. Mm -hmm. And they might make a difference, differentiation depending on the flavor of Protestant as to whether there was the preaching of the word Mm -hmm. and whether there was some sort of sacrament occasionally celebrated like baptism or or whatever, but I'm not sure that Protestants would distinguish. So for example, if you go to a Protestant Bible conference or something like that, a retreat uh, where there's a lot of people gathered and there's a lot of preaching and some singing and some prayers, that's not materially different than the Sunday worship service. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of drill down on this. What exactly is going on there different? Because because it's clear that a Catholic mass is a different thing, a very different thing. Mm I think the easy way out would be to say that they're different in purpose or content or effect. Obviously, the choir concert and the mass having different intentions. Yeah, or make just a distinction based on sort of genre. Like, obviously, the mass has a a long history. It has a certain form. The choir concert doesn't necessarily have that. 
Right. I mean, you could also say, well, one is the liturgy, but that doesn't really tell you a lot because one is liturgical and one isn't. Mm -hmm. And that, that would be a sort of shorthand way of saying it's because it's liturgical, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you could say that one of them is sacred uh, because it's dedicated or set aside for a more holy purpose, but that's all all kind of a tautology, right? I mean, it's just a a circular statement or redundancy because holy means sacred. So Mm -hmm. simply saying that the mass is holy and the choir concert isn't begs the question. What is holy? (laughs) What makes it holy? What makes it sacred? Right. So what do you think? I mean, are they, are they essentially different? Are they different in their, their nature? Uh, are they fancy word? Are they ontologically different? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do. And I think it has to do with that, that phrase sacred or holy that you have something beyond the ordinary that is happening, that, that this event is ontologically, we might say different, that, that it's essentially something different. And that has to do with the sacrament that is being celebrated there um, with the Eucharist. Yeah, it is, in your words, it's extraordinary mm-hmm. or extraordinary. But again, that still begs the question, why? What What about it makes it extraordinary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that would be the action of what God is doing in that case. And it's not, of course, that God isn't present at the choir concert or, or everywhere, because of course he is, but he's doing a particular kind of thing at the Mass when the, when the sacrament is being celebrated. He's encountering us in a particular way, and we can go into the specifics of that. I guess that's how I would distinguish it, is, is what God's action, what, what he is doing, what's taking place. Right. I think, I think that's a good way to look at it because it's not merely our subjective perception. Or what we're doing, because we're doing this similar kinds of things at the two different events. Right. I mean, we, we might think of people who say, I enjoy the choir concert more than, I enjoyed the choir concert more than I enjoyed church on Sunday morning. Right. Or um, all the people who say, I went to the beach and I encountered God and it was great and why do I need to go to mass on Sunday? Exactly. I like your word. I mean, part of it is a, an encounter and I think part of it is an objective encounter. Mm -hmm. So if we go back in, in scripture and we think of cases where there's an encounter with God. So, I mean, obviously you have Eden, right? Uh, where there's this kind of perfect encounter with God, Mm -hmm. right? This sort of perfect communion intersection. God comes into the garden and dwells with him in the day and, you know, heat of the day and whatnot. But then you can go back through all of these other sort of encounters, whether it's you know, Jacob, you know, seeing the ladder and wrestling with God, or it's Moses encountering him on the burning bush. Or, or on, Sinai with Sinai. all the fire on the mountain. Sure. And on and on and on, all of these things where there's this dramatic encounter. And then, of course, that gets uh, institutionalized, maybe is the right word, when God has them set up the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And so there you have God literally present in the tabernacle, right? Right. On the on the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat, you know, the Shekinah cloud, the, the presence of the Lord dwells. And mm-hmm. so the things that happen in the, the worship in the temple, those rites and liturgies and actions are, are literally designed to be this encounter with a transcendent God. Mm-hmm. And, and there is this metaphysical sort of reality that takes place when you say that God dwells on the, the mercy seat, right? That's, that's on the top of the Ark of the Covenant where right. these two golden angels or cherubim and they're facing each other with their, their wings. And the top of that was called the mercy seat and that the Lord, in a sense, 
dwells or lives on that. Well, that's a metaphysical kind of statement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not something that you can measure or verify with instruments. Right, right. Right? But it's real. And, and then that becomes a holy space. So there's the curtain, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Right? So all of that gets brought forward in Catholicism more than, than in Protestantism, where we, we believe that what's taking place in the Mass is a sacred encounter with God more on the order of what happened in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple than just a gathering of pe- people preaching and praying and singing. Right. You actually have, uh, it was a reading for the Mass just this past Sunday because the, the author of the book of Hebrews um, sets up this contrast mm-hmm. between the encounter that God had with the people on Sinai um, and what we experience. And, and I think we could apply his words here because he talks about how we um, have encountered the, the saints, the angels, God enthroned above um, and then we have imagery, say, in the book of Revelation about the sacrifice of the lamb, that, that all of these are, are active and present um, in the Holy of Holies in the Catholic Church. And that is in, in the church building, in the sacrifice of the Mass, in the Eucharist. Right. So a lot of this has to do, you know, this episode, we're calling it Metaphysics and the Mass. And, mm-hmm. and uh, in the setup to this episode, I... I kind of explained where the term metaphysics comes from and right, what it right. means. And, but let, let's think about the mass in terms of a metaphysical event, mm-hmm. right? And I know that that's not how most people think about it, but it really is what's going on. Right, right. So, so metaphysics deals with things like, these are the kinds of things that mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the, sort of the, the field of metaphysics investigates. One of the things is, what is something? I mean, what is its true nature and essence aside from our perception of it? So, for example, if I look at you or me or anybody, I see, uh, you know, a, a corporal body, right? Uh, we're, a, we're a batch of chemicals and cells and whatever. We have sort of a material body. And I mm-hmm. guess we have some kind of consciousness going on in our neurons, right? And we could say that we're a human being, but as Christians, we believe that we're created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about what we are, there's a difference between what we're made of and what we actually are. Right. And in some way that is, you know, not the topic of this episode, but we are in the image of God. And that is an identity. So when we talk about metaphysics, a lot of times we're talking about what something's true identity is, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and a lot of times that identity has a sort of a transcendent reality to it. Or for example, when Moses sees the burning bush, mm-hmm. you know, he sees a bush that's burning and it doesn't burn up. Well, that's sort of a material phenomenon. But what it is, is in a sense, the presence of the Lord mm-hmm. at that moment. Um, another thing that metaphysics deals with uh, is the attributes or dimensions of a thing that we can perceive and what sort of lies beyond what is perceivable. Right. With our senses. Right. So if we say, let me go back to our examples, uh, you know, Moses uh, and the Israelites are following a cloud of, you know, pillar of cloud or, or fire, you know, cloud by day, fire by night. Well, okay. If we imagine a pillar of fire, um, it's a big fiery pillar. That's what you can perceive, what you can materially see, but that's not what it is, right? Or what it means. Yeah. Or what it means. Right. It has dimensions that go beyond what can be perceived. It is the presence of the Lord leading them, and it has significance. You know, I know we're both fans of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, and mm-hmm. there's that one wonderful passage in Voyage of the Dawn Treader 
where they meet um, this guy who yes. used to be a star. Yes. He's a retired, like he used to be one of the stars, constellations yeah. in the no, sky. I, I know where you're going with this. It's one of my favorite passages because he he says he's a star and, and Eustace says to him, in, in our world, a star is a, you know, a, a ball of gas that's, that's burning. And he says, son, even in your world, that's what, a, that's not what a star is. It's just what a star is made out of. Correct. And so when we think about what the stars are, Right. Uh, they're, they're balls of flaming gas, but they might be more in the same way that we are not just a batch of chemicals, you know, held together with some, some electrical, you know, impulses running through our neurons. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that metaphysics deals with is how, uh, something is related to space and time as we perceive them. So when we think of miracles and the mass, and we think of, for example, the presence of Christ, Mm -hmm. that Christ is present. So when, so even that Protestant thing, well, it's not Protestant, it's biblical, but wherever two or more gather uh, in my name, there I am. Well, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. How can Jesus be in multiple places throughout time and space at one time? And are there different types of presence? Yeah, there are different types of presence. And so how space and time interacts, how can we, in a sense, be the church uh, in which we are all one you know, members of a body, but that body is spread out through space and time. And this really becomes a metaphysical question, right? Mm -hmm. So here's some examples, you know, of that. And then we're going to apply this all to the mass in a minute. We're just sort of like winding up the pitch Mm -hmm. here. But so for example, what does it mean to be eternal? So for something to be eternal, for God to be eternal, or for there to be eternal truth, or Christ to be eternal, or heaven to be eternal, or whatever, does it mean that it exists in time? It just never has an end. Mm -hmm. It just sort of lasts forever. Or does it mean in a sense it's sort of outside time? Right. It is measurable within time. And when we talk about eternal things, as we're going to talk about in a moment, we apply this to the mass, we can talk about, you know, things that in a sense don't just last forever. The word forever really isn't relevant. Right. Right. They just things that are are that are that that exist kind of as as God at the burning bush um, revealed Himself. I am right, exactly. I I, I just I am that I am. Um, another thing is uh, how things intersect with the perceived world. So the case here would be this classic example mm-hmm. uh, used in this field, which is the example of flatland. Yes, you want to. Tell us about flatland. Sure. So it's it's a conceptual or a, a hypothetical place that's two dimensional. So it's not like our three dimensional um, world. Everything is flat. So and, think of a piece of paper right. stretched infinitely, like right. a plane. And, and imagine that there are somehow beings. I don't know if they're stick figures or what that live live in flatland. Um, if they were to encounter something three dimensional, um, if you know a pencil or a finger or something would were to touch flatland. Yeah. So we take this. Imagine that flatland is a is a piece of paper that ex- that is infinitely thin, right, and extends infinitely in all directions, mm-hmm. right. To, and then you take a pencil or anything, an apple, anything, and you punch it through that, so that the people in Flatland, what do they see? Well, the the idea is that they wouldn't have a way to fully comprehend what that is. It wouldn't fit any of their categories. It would it contain information in a dimension outside of their experience. So if I'm a flat being, mm-hmm. I'm kind of going along in Flatland and I just come against a wall. It's like I bang into, I bump into something that feels like a wall. Mm-hmm. And so I decide to go to the right and kind of follow this wall. And it kind of just keeps curving around and round and round and round. And it brings me back to where I started. 
<clears throat> right? But I don't have a sense that that thing extends up and down. Right. Right. I don't know what the, what the only sense that I can have it is that limited sense that where it's intersected my world. Right. Right. Exactly. So you can understand it in the categories that you have, but not in ones that you don't understand and that are outside of your experience. Right. Now, this leads us to another example, I think, of metaphysics applied to Catholicism or Christianity, and that is uh, angelic appearance, the appearances of angels mm-hmm. or theophanies or manifestations of angels or God. Right, right. So what exactly happens when we see an angel, right? It's kind of a weird thing. So the word angel in the original language means messenger. Right. So a messenger comes from God. Now, at that moment, what exactly is is going on there? Does the does the messenger assume a material form? So at that moment, like Flatland or whatever, this seraphim or cherubim or archangel or whatever, when Gabriel appears to Mary, does he, in a sense, kind of incarnate a temporary physical body? Right, right. That, that he uses for a moment and then and then it. Disappears, dissipates, or is it a like a spiritual manifestation, or is it more that we perceive that we're allowed to perceive that being, even if it doesn't have a sort of uh, a material or presence? I mean, you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and all of these have been theories that have been proposed. Um, You know, there's a theory that maybe they're just. affecting our minds in some way or our brains so that we can perceive something even though we can't you know perceive the totality of what that angel is or of course what what god is um but where this intersects with that flatland analogy is is the idea that maybe when when an angel appears or when when god reveals himself in some way um they are a reality that that transcends um our categories of our four-dimensional you know space and time and so when they reveal themselves, we perceive what makes sense to us based on how we're able to perceive reality without understanding, you know, what goes above and below and, and what is in all the other categories, however, you know, infinite dimensions of, of right. God one. one could. So, so, for example, do angels have wings? Now, it's interesting because there's a couple of visions that, you know, you know for example, in Revelation, John has this vision of the throne room of God and these... These sort of archangels, high angelic beings have have sort of wings that they put on them. Um, but when it says and the angel Gabriel shows up to uh, Mary, it doesn't say that he has like bird wings. Right, right. It never mentions wings. And yet a lot of times people associate angels with wings because they are able to fly between us and God. At least that's our perception that they're having to fly between us and God. But when we think about flatland, maybe not. Maybe they're just always in the presence of the Lord. And we're just able to, in a sense, encounter that or see that in some way for a moment. And the wings make sense as a symbol. And maybe when something from a higher reality encounters us, symbolism is the only, you know, that's the dimension in our reality that we can understand it. The, The wings make sense in that way. But I think Christ's own words when he's talking about the little ones and their angels are always before the presence of God. Right. Um, but of course, those angels are also watching over, you know, their charges, their yeah. human charges. I think it does imply that it's not, you know, some kind of physical movement. Like well, like they have, they have to, to go back and forth. Right. And, and of course, that kind of language is used even in scripture because it's something we can understand. Think like the book of Job where it right. talks about Satan going, the the sons of, of God going to and fro among the earth. Like that's a 
anthropomorphism that right. we can understand, but it conveys something of a higher reality, uh, yeah. punctuating our reality. Well, it, I know you and I, are, again, are both fans of C.S. Lewis, and I think he has a couple of places in his books where he, he talks about this with respect to the weird symbolism associated with angels. So mm-hmm. like in Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees these kinds of angelic beings and they have like, you know, 97 eyes and wheels and spinning things right. all over them. And it's like this super bizarre like thing. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, he he recognizes that that kind of imagery um, doesn't really make sense for us. I mean, what would be a being with that was just a bunch of eyes and, and wheels? But maybe it's conveying something about the nature of this being that is visiting us um, that that is just translated into symbols in our reality because it's transcendent. We can't understand what it is. See, I think there's two ways to think of that. I think the one is to think of them as symbols. Mm -hmm. The other way to think of them is back to our flatland example Mm -hmm. is that this complex being, multidimensional being with all these aspects to its reality that we can't quite grasp intersects us. And like the people in Flatland only seeing the pencil as basically a wall that they can walk around. Right, right. That there's, that we're just seeing some part of that angelic being without seeing the full context. Sure. So we're seeing the part of it that we can see, not the fullness of it because we can't see the fullness of it. So I know this is getting super speculative and the, the, the listeners are like, well, oh, thank you for staying is, with us listeners. Yeah. Thank you for staying with us. But we are, we're trying to set the stage because, you know, I think our contention is that when we're looking at the Catholic mass and we start with the difference between the church picnic and the mass or whatever, uh, or the Bible conference and the mass is that something like this is happening in the mass, mm-hmm. a bunch of, there's an intersection you know, in a sense, time, space, dimensions are sort of punched through and we are encountering things that take place on, in, at metaphysical levels of time and space and reality that we can only sort of see shadows and hints and we can only see small parts of it right, that right. become sort of materially visible to us for 60 minutes during the Mass. But all of those things like Flatland... Uh, the the pencil going through Flatland are, are are aspects of something much bigger and more important that's going on in the mass, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's apply those to the mass mm. in th- in three ways. First of all, let's ask this question: What is the true nature or essence of the mass? I mean, aside from our perception of it. Yeah. So I alluded earlier to the book of Revelation, where it's talking about um, the the Lamb in heaven um, being sacrificed. And I think that is the essence of the Mass, is that it's a participation in Christ's sacrifice, his um, eternal self-offering of the Son to the Father. And of course, when, when Christ came and became a man and died on the cross and rose again, that was him enacting that in the incarnation as, as both God and man. But this is also an eternal reality. This, this is part of the nature of God that the Son offers himself to the Father. And just as or in a similar way to how that's enacted in the crucifixion, it's presented to us in a real way, not in, not in just um, a memorial way in the Mass, that, that we experience this, that it is present to us, this eternal reality punches through, as, as we talked about with, with Flatland, it is present, and we're able to perceive it 
in certain ways, but not in its in its totality. Right. I mean, so what's happening there, like, okay, Revelation chapter five, John goes into the throne room of God. Mm-hmm. And what does he see at the altar there is a lamb looking at it as if it had been slain. And the, mm-hmm. and the, the angels are rejoicing that the martyrs are there, mm-hmm. uh, right? All of these things are going on. And in a sense, that is always happening. Because as you say, it's an eternal reality. It's outside the bounds of time. When we said, you know, metaphysics asks, is something eternal just because it lasts forever or is just something that is? And I, I like the way you right. put it. The, the, the reality is in the, sort of in the eternal present sense, the son offers himself to the father and the son is that which is slain or he is the lamb mm-hmm. which is slain. And when we participate in the mass, all of those choirs of angels, the martyrs, the 24 elders that represent the Old and New Testaments, all these things are all there. And so we may walk into St. Such-and-Such Corner Parish, right, Mm -hmm. and see Father Dudley, you know, getting up there and doing it, and we're sitting next to, you know, Frank and Susan or whatever, and it all looks very ordinary, but we're like the flatland people that are sort of bumping into this eternal reality that has intersected us for the... 60 minutes. Right. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that can really um, invigorate our, our sense of the mass because as, as you say, it can seem so pedestrian and so ordinary. But if we have even just the, the slightest inkling that, that this is an extraordinary eternal reality that we are privileged to participate in, um, I, I think it, it really enhances it infinitely. Well, I mean, in that sense, the mass itself is a miracle. Mm -hmm. Like in its totality, the mass is a miracle in the sense that of a miracle being a, what, not a suspension. But sort of an intervention. An intervention or alteration of the the material laws of the universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the mass is this intersection, intervention in which eternal realities puncture our material world. Um, you know, you've heard me say before that the sacraments in a sense are like, are like where God punches a hole in space time and eternity sort of like shines through at that moment. Mm-hmm. And so the very act of the mass, no, as you say, no matter how pedestrian, how ordinary it is, whatever, is a, a miraculous encounter with God. It becomes a sacred moment. That's what makes it sacred is it is that miraculous counter. And there's things that are taking place in it, right? So when we talk about dimensions of the mass, you come into the mass, right? And from the beginning, the, the priest comes in and he begins acting in the person of Christ. Right, right. We'll, we'll talk more about that in, a, in another episode. But, but in that moment, you have Father Dudley with his limp and his, you know, whatever, uh, and his acid reflux and his, you know, balding head and whatever it is. He's a frail human being, but in that moment, he is acting as a priest in the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. That is a miracle, a a metaphysical miracle. Right. And it's God doing it, which is essential to the definition of a miracle. It's not like we somehow through our efforts gin up enough. Right you know, strength in order to make it happen. Or that Father Dudley just decides that he wants to pretend to be Jesus. Sure. Yeah, that's right? just play acting. Uh, and when we, from the from that point on in the Mass, when we, uh, we engage in the penitential act, mm-hmm. that is sort of a miraculous uh, reenacting, or not reenacting, of participation in the fact that God's people bow down before him and hear the mercy of of Christ pronounced upon them. We well, participate in that eternal reality. Well, yeah, and we can talk about this more when we talk about consecration, but of of course the priest acting in 
the person of Christ is a miracle, is an intervention of God. Um, he's acting in the person of Christ the head, and we are the members of the body. Um, and that is a way that God is is working as well. In yeah. The well, and I think that, that that leads me to the other thing that I think is so miraculous about the Mass is when we talk about suspension of space and time or, or not suspension, but transcendent transcending space and time, we realize that when we are participating in the Mass, we're participating in that Mass with all Christians or all Catholics everywhere, past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. And, and that's tremendous, right? So you were talking earlier about that passage where it says, you not come to Mount Sinai with a thunder and things, with the eternal mountain of God, with, you know, uh, legions of angels and all the people of God. The that saints are here, in glory. All yeah. saints in glory participating. And in that mass, you know, Father Dudley, the balding, you know, priest, and, you know, my, you know, uh, the guy in the next pew snoring and the kid who's, you know, screeching and playing with the car keys and all of the distractions and everything else that's going on. Yet at that moment, we're united in a transcendent, metaphysical, miraculous way with all Catholics everywhere, mm-hmm. past, present, and future. And that is a miracle. Absolutely. So we're going to pick this up because uh, we, our contention here is that the metaphysics of the Mass mean that all Masses are a miracle or the entire Mass is a miracle. But we're going to drill down in our next couple of conversations on some very distinct or discrete miracles, sort of sub-miracles that occur mm-hmm. in the Mass. So stick with us for that. Yes. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.